All right, well this morning we're going to study, a begin a study of the book of Obadiah. Uh, we are going to come back to our confessional study after we finish this book. Uh, throughout the year we take a time to study a topic or to study a book of the Bible and then we return back to our confessional study. So it's an ongoing thing. Uh, I will tell you at the outset, I have never preached through nor taught through the book of Obadiah. So this is uh, my first uh, time preaching or teaching through it. I've certainly read it a number of times. Uh, but this is going to be uh, one of those studies that uh, we are all certainly going to be learning together. Now, I will tell you this morning that this morning will come across as a bit more uh, introductory. It'll come across as a little bit more academic because when, I, when we do a book study like this, it's a little bit different than when we do the expositional study and during the worship service. Uh, I like to introduce the books by giving as much background as I can give with relation to the author, with relation to the occasions. Uh, we'll even get down to try to find before we study, uh, trying to find Christ in that particular book. I'm uh, looking at the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures, of course, uh, we should look to find Christ in those pages. So the book of Obadiah is an extremely short uh, book. Uh, it is simply one chapter, uh, and it is the, the shortest in the Old Testament. And as we read, I want to read just the first eight verses of this to kind of introduce this particular book, uh, and then we're going to start making some introductory statements and comments regarding uh, the purpose, circumstances, uh, and the, 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 intention of the, the intention of this book. So you'll see there in verse number one, uh, it says, the vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a rumor from the Lord. And an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. Thou, hast, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. If, the, if thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding in him. Shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of the Mount of Esau? So as we look at this introduction to Obadiah. Well, I want to just kind of focus on that expression, the very first expression, the vision of Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah. The name Obadiah simply means the worshiper of God. 
So he has a name that is very much an important name. It's a name that is very descriptive as to who he is and what he does. This prophet, Obadiah, we know very little about him. Uh, but the particular book, the one thing we do know is the meaning that his name conveys. It's quite a name. He worships God. So that's very important. He, Obadiah tells us in this opening phrase, he's telling us not only a little bit about who he is by the description of his name, but he tells us where his prophecy comes from, and he tells what the prophecy is. Now, what's different about Obadiah from a lot of the other prophets is instead of announcing the actual coming prophecy, he explains it more than he announces it. And we're going we're gonna to see that as we go through. Obadiah's name would have been an authenticating name to the Jew. When they saw the name Obadiah, it would have authenticated his authority and it would have authenticated that this is one of God's prophets. Now, Obadiah is, was not a rare name. Uh, there are a number of individuals that have, would have gone by that name. However, his background, a little bit about him, we know very little. Now, he entitles it a vision, the vision of Obadiah. We know in the Old Testament, many of the prophets were also called seers. So seers were people who saw the vision. Okay? Now, he doesn't describe the vision that he saw in as much as he describes the substance and the meaning of the vision. In other words, he doesn't give us a lot of descriptive words and says, this is what I saw. Uh, much like in contrast with Ezekiel. If you read through Ezekiel, Ezekiel gives us a lot of insight as to what he's actually seeing and then gives us the meaning. Obadiah doesn't tell us what he actually saw. He gives us most of the substance and the meaning of what he did, in fact, see. So when we, when we see in Scripture about a seer and a vision, um, these are foreign words to the New Testament Christian, the New Testament saint. Uh, the Bible doesn't show us anywhere where we have a need for visions any longer. Uh, there is not a need for seers any longer. I would tell you it's a warning sign if someone says they're seeing visions from God. It's a, it is an extreme warning. Uh, there are no need, there's no need for visions any longer. We have a completed copy of God's Word. But in the Old Testament, these prophets, these seers, were necessary. They were, they were necessary to unfold God's purposes. So, the future to Obadiah was most likely unfolded to him in the form of sights that were spread out before his mind. Okay? So, the idea of a prophet and a seer... Uh, these, these things are flashing across his mind, if that may not be the best word to describe it. He's not seeing visions out in the world. They're, they're things that are, are flashing across his mind. And they are spread out before him by God himself, of course. What we'll find out from this letter, or this particular book, is that Obadiah's language really is a succession of, a, of pictures, we see one picture which leads to another picture which leads us to another picture and it gives us this idea of exactly uh, what he was talking about, who the, intent, who the intended uh, receivers of some of these prophecies were. We do know in the Old Testament when you see the phrase, the word, that is often also a reference to a prophecy. 
All right, so that kind of helps us uh, see what these, uh, these visions were. Uh, when, when God spoke to the prophets, okay, that's what was called the vision. Okay, so Obadiah tells us right from the very first, first words he writes, the vision of Obadiah tells us exactly what we're getting ready to read. So his name also expresses the certainty of the knowledge they were going to receive. In other words, it is a vision that is being seen. It is something that could be comprehended. And if we were to say, what is the most uh, keen of our senses? Uh, it most likely is our sight. Okay, we have senses, other senses, of course, but our sight is that thing which is, uh, it seems to be most keen. It's the thing that we rely on the most. Uh, take away your vision and you realize it really is quite difficult when the vision is removed. So, a vision is a contemplation of things that are true. In other words, Obadiah is not just giving us a, a, a series of suggestions as to what might be the meaning. He actually indicates what the meaning and the substance of these prophecies are. He doesn't just let us interpret this for yourself. Here's my vision, you tell me what it means. No, he says, here's what it is, here's what the vision is, here's the substance, here's the receiver of it, here's who I am prophesying about through the Lord. So, very quickly, again, I, I, I fear this will be very, a little bit academic this morning, so if you'll just bear with, bear with me, we'll, we will get this. But these, are, I think, are very important facts when you study a book. So, again, if you try to do a, histor a historical study on Obadiah, there is very little that you'll find about him. Uh, this is not like David, where we can find endless records of David, not only in Scripture, but historical records. Um, if you want to know about the life of David, you could go to non-inspired books. The non-inspired books, the Bible is the only inspired book, but go to a book, pull it off a bookshelf, study about the life of David. There's, there are volumes and volumes written about David. Obadiah, not so much. There's not a lot we know about him. We do not know a family line. We don't have a family tree for Obadiah. We can't go back and trace his genealogy and say, okay, he comes from this particular line. But the emphasis is on his name, the worshiper of God. I would suggest that's a pretty meaningful, powerful name, the worshiper of God. The name in historical records appears to have been a common name. Uh, it is referred to in the Old Testament of 12 different people. So when you read the Old Testament, don't make the assumption that every time you see the name Obadiah, that it's the Obadiah who was the author of this particular letter. Sometimes we have a tendency to do that. We see a name and we say, that's the same person. This is not the, it's used 12 different times in the Old Testament and it's not referring to this Obadiah. So that's a, that's a key thought. So the authority... The authority of this letter is really found in verse number 18. It says, And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau. And here's the authority, for the Lord hath spoken it. So Obadiah is clearly saying, this is not my word, this is the word of the Lord. That's his authority. That what, that's what gives him the right to actually say what he is saying. So when we think about 
the circumstances. What, what, what was going on in the day and age in which Obadiah wrote? Because we know his name, we don't know a lot about the dates. We don't know a lot about the time of writing. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of people who dispute exactly when this book was written. And there's proposed dates. Uh, some of those dates uh, go back to uh, particular times. That it was, he, he wrote this either during the reign of King Jehoram of Judah and shortly after the final destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. There's, there's dates being referred to that it's when the Philistines and the Arabs plundered Judah. Uh, there was a revolution by the Edomites. So we don't know exactly the date. And it doesn't, doesn't affect our study as to the purpose of this. So the date is a little bit of a, uh, a, a mystery. Um, since this book does not contain any evidence of his family, it does not contain any information in, chrono in, in chronology. There is no, there's nothing I can point to to say for certain, here is what he is. But there's a couple of things that are, are quite remarkable. In verses 11 through 14, when we get to this particular verses, we find that there, this prophet Obadiah has in view some sort of a military assault. This military assault was on Jerusalem. So at the heart of this, there's something going on with the Israelites. There's something going on towards Jerusalem. That's what starts to give us an idea that this may have had certain implications for certain time periods. But this is what he has in view. He doesn't give us enough information for us to be able to say we know exactly what date of this military assault he's talking about. There were a number of times that there were military assaults on Jerusalem. But some people relate this, uh, verses 11 through 14, not to an attack necessarily on Jerusalem itself, but Babylonian invasions, okay, which ultimately led to collapses. So uh, Jewish tradition, again, okay, not, not inspired words, their tradition explicitly mentions that this is with reference to the Edomites' involvement in the Babylonian assaults. In other words, the Jewish tradition said, Obadiah is talking about a time when the Edomites participated with the Babylonians in attacking God's people. That's what Jewish tradition says. So since we cannot date Obadiah precisely, we do know that there are some markers or some indicators as to what might be talking about here. When we think about this vision, uh, visions, again, the definition would be messages communicated by God to prophets. Okay, the key is by God to prophets. Uh, there is really no, there is no need for these visions any longer. Uh, there is a resurgence in quote-unquote Christian circles about people, part of their testimony, saying they're seeing visions. Uh, it has gone throughout history where there's been this resurgence where suddenly there's a fascination with visions and people suddenly believe they're seeing things. They believe they're being transported places. And we've seen that over the last 15 years where there's been just a fascination with things we can't actually see, but we believe we should be able to see. We don't need them because we have all that we need in the scriptures itself. 
So this shortest Old Testament book consists of really several parts. Okay, so when we break this down and we get it mostly into the exposition next week, it's referred to as a war oracle. Uh, it's announcing certain judgment on Edom. Okay, what, what we have to keep in mind going through this book is that this is announcing a judgment on Edom. Obadiah, through the word of God, is going to identify two main things and the reason for this judgment. Number one was Edom's arrogance, their presumptive arrogance, that they could get away with it. And secondly, that they were self-deceived. Verse 3, actually, when we read that, look what it says. The pride of thine heart, this is with reference to Edom, hath deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, who shall bring me down to the ground? That was the arrogant, presumptive pride of the Edomites, they said, who can bring us down? Okay, so you can see very clearly that that's what's happening here. Verses really, the first eight, eight verses we read are dealing with Edom's belief that they were immune from God's judgment. As a matter of fact, they believe they were immune from God's divine intervention at all. They, they deceive themselves into believing that God's not even taking notice of us. God doesn't really care that we exist. It's really quite remarkable that a, a nation of people could be brought to that level. But then we see that there is an explanation for further reasons as to why there should be a coming judgment on Edom. And in a more practical body, it is a lack of brotherly commitment. There's a lack of commitment to one another. There's also a, a boasting and a gloating over the disaster of God's people. In other words, the Edomites saw God's people being destroyed and they gloated over it. They took joy in it. They took pleasure in it. And they said, we love to see God's people being persecuted and destroyed. Now, I would say by way of application, there is a segment of this world who at this moment takes great joy in seeing God's people destroyed and persecuted. Not just a casual, uh, they're taking great joy in seeing God's people supposedly being destroyed. So this attitude, of course, still is in existence today. Obadiah goes on to also explain that Edom is going to receive this judgment because they are cooperating with Judah's enemies. In other words, they're helping. They're not just innocent bystanders standing back and saying, wow, we're loving what the other nations are doing to God's people. They're actually participating in it. And while they're participating, they're gloating over the reality that God's people are being destroyed. Now you're beginning to get the picture that these Edomites are not good characters. These Edomites, and we're going to find out the relation and who the Edomites actually are, which really is going to open up an entire box of what's actually happening here. And then the book ends with the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is referred here as the day in the historical account when God will come and will make all things right. He will set all things in order. And ultimately, for Judah and Israel, it will result in their deliverance. So Obadiah writes about a very real judgment that's coming. He gives the very reasons why the judgment is coming. And then he finishes the letter by saying, 
it will deliver Israel and it will deliver Judah from the Edomites. So that gives us a little bit of an idea of what's, what's happening here. Now, as we, as we study through, we need to keep, remember, context, context, context. Okay? If you read Obadiah as a piece of literature, okay, it's exceptional. If you read it, if you, if you were studying this and looked at this as a literary piece and you read it in a literature class, it's an exceptional piece with what it's doing. Again, how it's, how it's phrasing, how it's wording, what it's giving us pictures of. It's very descriptive. And it, it's, it's, but it's extremely brief, but it's a powerful composition of just 21 verses that yet contain things such as irony, there's imagery, there's repetition. The Bible is very well known for its repetition. It continues to repeat principles and concepts because God's putting the emphasis on those concepts. A, a, a preacher taught me years ago, he said, always make sure you look where the emphasis is being placed. Context, part of context, also includes emphasis. Who is the primary recipient of what's happening here? We've got to keep in mind that this is written about Edom. Okay, that's, that's the context of what's happening here. This divine message begins by addressing the nations who are called to execute judgment upon Edom. That's, that's what's going on here. So these, these, this little letter is really intended to show the enemies of God and the ultimate deliverance that God's people are going to receive. It's the, it's the classic, here's the, here's the enemy given in the story, and here's ultimately the victory that comes through God. So how does this contribute to the whole? How do, we, how do we fit Obadiah into the context of Scripture? Where does it fit? Why is it important? How does it contribute to the Bible? I would compare it to the wording and the literary, exceptional literary, to the book of Revelation on a much smaller scale. Now, Revelation has been debated for years with regard to what's literal, what's allegorical, um, some people have taken this extreme position on Revelation and they say, I believe everything literally as it's written. Some say, no, everything is allegorical. Uh, some say it's a mix of literal, it's a mix of allegory. But if you read Revelation as a piece of literature, it's exceptional. I mean, in its descriptions and in its visions, its pictures of what we see. But how does it contribute to the Bible? What we don't want to do is just look at this as a literary piece like we're studying at a college somewhere. We want to look at it, how does the book of Obadiah fit into the whole context of God's purposes, right? That's the whole reason. Not just, oh, this is a wonderful literary piece. But when it comes to comparing to another book, the, Re the book of Revelation, which primarily proclaims the downfall of the persecuting Roman Empire. A lot of times people lose sight of that in Revelation. A lot of it's about the fall of the Roman Empire. This book, very similar, is mostly about the fall of the Edomites. But it also teaches us that the book of Obadiah teaches how do we sustain faith in God's moral government 
In other words, how do I live in this world knowing that there's a world out there that really wants to destroy God's people with intent? How, how do God's people live knowing that part of God's purposes is allowing God's people to actually be persecuted and in some cases completely removed off the face of the earth? How can that be part of it? Yes, there's victory at the end of Obadiah, but there are many, many of God's people who through this vision that Obadiah gives were absolutely, they were destroyed off of the face of the earth. But God's moral government was still fully in effect. So Obadiah is not about God losing control for a single moment. Again, there are well-intended, meaning Christians today who believe right now, this period of time, God is in a sense out of control. And that until he decides to retake control, we just have to deal with all the chaos. God is still as much in control now as he's always been and he always will be. God's not getting uh, the devil and the darkness and death and hell is not getting the upper hand on God right now. It's all still part of the moral government of God. So we have to keep that in mind. It's contributing to the whole of who God is. What is that hope? What sustains my faith is the eventual triumph. Folks, that's the only way you can live a life in this world is knowing the promise of eventual, literal triumph. Not allegorical triumph. Literal triumph. Literal is a word we often misuse. We say something that's outlandish and we say, I literally... For example, I literally starved to death. Then why are you still here? You didn't literally starve to death. Literal means it happened. It, it, it literally, that's what... So there is literal triumph. This is not some pie-in-the-sky theology that says, you know, I'm, I'm kind of hoping that we actually do triumph someday, but I'm really not sure of it. God's declaring throughout His Word, and that's how Obadiah fits into the whole is there is an eventual literal triumph. Not, not just something that will appear to be triumph, but actual victory that will be seen. It has been described, Obadiah has been described as a pastoral message. Obadiah writes often as a pastor speaks. He tries to preach and to teach to people who are discouraged people's hearts who are broken, people's hearts that are aching, people that are, are tired of sin, they're, 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 they're tired of giving in to the temptations, they're tired of fighting. And Obadiah reminds them, God is in control and there is a throne and God is in full control of everything that's happening. Because a pastoral message can't be from week to week. Listen, I guarantee you this week, you literally, everything that happens to you is going to be good. That nothing bad is going to happen to you. No one can make that promise. But what they can say is eventually there will be a perfect literal triumph in God. Now again, our problem is we want the triumph now instead of living through what's now, what appears to be a God who maybe is not in control. But God cares for his own. 
I can't stress this enough. When we use phrases like God loves you, Christ died for you, we're talking about the ultimate picture of care. We're talking about the ultimate picture of concern. You never get over the reality that God actually cares for depraved sinners like us. He actually cares. Not hypothetically cares. Not as just a type, but he literally cares. Now that blows my mind. Because I don't give God reason to care for me most days. And yet, that is my sustaining hope. In this day and age, is not in my now. It's in the eventual promise of the triumph. That's how this fits into the total contribution of the Bible. So what is the theology here? Well, we have the justice of God. We see the justice of God because He has power to call nations to give account for their actions. Do you realize throughout Scripture, God has used even wicked nations to pour out His judgment on His own people And in other cases, he has used wicked nations to pour out judgment on other wicked nations, all to accomplish his purposes. What's being being demonstrated there is the justice of God. That theology that God calls man into account for his actions. Edom did not believe that they would ever have to answer for its cruelty to the people of God. Imagine living your life today not thinking or actually believing I never have to give an account for my actions. If I didn't believe I have to give an account for my actions, it would lead me to live in a way that is really all about me. It's all about my own self-centeredness. It's all about my arrogance. It's all about what I want, not about the moral government of God. Now, you and I as believers ought to be saying today, how, would a, how can a person live believing that? Yet, that's what Obadiah is giving this vision about. When God is ready, and what we're going to see is God summons the nations to punish the enemies of God. This letter is about God, with His authority, summoning other nations to pour out judgment on Edom. How does that fit into the whole? Part of that is his covenant commitment that God has made his people. When God gave that covenant to his people, that also meant that he would use whatever means necessary to protect the covenant that he promised. If that means dealing with a wicked nation like Edom, then he'll deal with them. Folks, this is part of the modern day Christianity we're starting to, I believe, we're starting to lose. We're starting to lose the reality of God's authority to deal with the wickedness that's on all of our all sides. And that we have somehow pushed the narrative forward to say, listen, God's not dealing with the wicked quick enough, soon enough, or right, so I'm going to deal with the wicked in and of myself. You and I don't have the authority in our own self to deal with the wicked. Now, we can call sin, sin. I don't have the authority today to call out anything against a wicked nation or wicked people. Like I couldn't stand up before a congregation of people nor any other leader in a church and say, we want to pour out wrath and judgment on the wicked people that live on a certain side of the city. You and I don't have the authority to do that. 
What I have the authority to do is to remind you that there's a God who's in control and he has promised that he will avenge and he will bring the eventual literal triumph. Folks, it's my only source of hope. That's all, that's all I have, and I don't say that lightly. That is my hope, is that God has promised to keep his covenant. So that you and I, again, here's where we miss this. We learned a little bit as we were studying the confession. That's partly why we're doing the book of Obadiah. Don't lose sight of our connection to Abraham through this. Remember, we studied in that last chapter of the confession about how if we are in, if we are in Christ... We are in Abraham as well. Part of the covenantal promise was also made to Abraham and the protection of the line of Abraham, even those who would be grafted in. Part of that covenant promise and protection was protecting God's people against a familiar name, which we see it as Edom, but the connection to Esau. That's the fascinating part of all of this. When we read in Romans Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. You cannot ignore what happens in Obadiah because it's all connected. Edom and Esau, you can't separate them. We're going to learn that. So the theology, the contribution of the Bible, it's all part of the whole. It's part of the larger story. The relationship between Edom and Israel is extremely unique because both of them had a common ancestry as nations. Remember, we don't have a line of genealogy for Obadiah, but there is a relationship between Edom and Israel. Here's the, here's the fascinating part among many other things. Both, both, Esau, both Edom and Israel are descended from Abraham's son, Isaac. They're both descendants of Isaac. What a plot twist. You have these descendants... Isaac, who Rebekah bore twin boys. Esau, also known as Edom, was the elder of the boys, right? God's promises to Abraham were eventually confirmed in his younger brother, Jacob. Jacob, we know, was later renamed what? Israel. The relationship between Jacob and Esau... That relationship, if you want to read about that, read Genesis 25 through Genesis 32. That is all about the relationship between Jacob and Esau, and it was turbulent to say the least. The fact, and we ought to note this, that the fact that Esau and Edom, Esau, Edom, despised his birthright, right? We know that Esau, as the firstborn son, sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. Just outright sold it. Jacob later deceives his own father into giving him the blessing, right? All this Old Testament story, should, this is all part of the larger story. If you just jump into Obadiah and you read that and you don't even know the background, it just reads like, okay, who is Edom? And who is this? And who is that? Why is, there, why is there a relationship here? Why are the Edomites so angry at Israel? If, if they are descended from common ancestry, why is there a turbulent relationship? 
We might even ask the question today, why did Jacob get the blessing if he deceived his father to get it? There's one of the great theological questions when someone asks that. And people ask the question, well, does that mean that I can do that to get God's blessing? Can I deceive to get God's blessing? These are grand theological questions that get asked. But yet, we know that Esau in Genesis 27 makes a vow. He vows to kill Jacob. Genesis 27, Esau says, I am going to kill Jacob. Fast forward, Esau is Edom. Edom wants to kill Jacob. Jacob renamed Israel. It's not a lean, light connection. This has been going on for years and years prior to when Obadiah wrote. Esau vows to kill Jacob, and eventually, after a period of exile, Jacob returned to Canaan, Genesis 32, and there is, in fact, a reconciliation. We, kind of, we should remember that story. Jacob was actually very afraid of that meeting. He was afraid of that meeting because he knew that Esau wanted to kill him. You can read through that, and you're, you're, it's, it's like this drama playing out before you, and like, what's going to happen? However, that reconciliation didn't last. And we understand that that future relationship between those two nations was filled with tension, even though they came from the same family. Okay? So that's part of the larger story. Quickly, where do we see Christ in the book of Obadiah? There is no specific reference in this book to a coming of a future messianic king. It's not direct. It's not mentioned specifically. But it does say that it will be the Lord himself who intervenes and reorders the affairs of all nations in verse 15. So the universal scope is here of this coming judgment. It ties into the entirety of the coming judgment. We know that Christ one day is coming back and there ultimately is a messianic deliverance that is foretold. And even though Edom is going to participate in this destruction of Jerusalem, God's concern for his people is ensured that they are restored to the promised divine covenantal blessing while all the enemies of the cross and the enemies of God are overthrown. It's hard for our minds to think about a time when all the nations of the world and the people who are against God are no longer raging. But there's coming a day. There's coming a day. Not hope to, a promise, a covenantal promise that this is going to happen. Christ is coming again. The Lord will set all things right. So let me, let me encourage you with this and we'll finish for today and then we're going to expound this more next week. Throughout all of history, whenever the church has suffered... And I want to give you hope today. I want to give you lasting hope. Throughout church history, throughout all of, all of history that we have, even going back, any time the church has suffered at the hands of God's enemies, the message of Obadiah has resonated louder and louder. It resonates because it provides us that support and that faith and that hope to say, wait a minute, God will not allow his enemies to ultimately overthrow his people. No matter what happens, we're never going to be overthrown spiritually if we're truly in Christ. 
Now, does that mean bad things won't happen on the surface? It doesn't mean that at all. There are people who today who are suffering greatly. There are churches who have been raided this morning. There are churches who have been raided and people who've been killed for their faith this very day. It has happened. It's happening at an alarming rate. The church is under more persecution in this day and age than it's ever been in human history. You go all the way back to the dark ages, and if you start looking at the things that are happening against the people of God, you will see that it is running, it is a rage against God's church. So why in the world would you want to be a follower of a church that's the subject and the attack of people who are self-proclaimed enemies of God? Because it reminds us of what God has done for us. Because of God, we're not one of the persecutors. Because of His mercy and grace and love towards us, we are on, in the family of God. Present circumstances are always the difficult challenge to our faith. Circumstances are a reality. Circumstances are what we see every day. They're what we touch. They're what we feel. There are days the circumstances become so overwhelming we lose sight of the reality of what Christ has promised. I love what Spurgeon said about this book. He said, when God comes to punish his enemies, he also comes to bless his friends. When Pharaoh is overthrown in the Red Sea, it is that Israel may pass onward to Canaan. When Amalek is overcome, it is that Israel may be at peace. There is a black cloud as well as the silvery rain. The acceptable year of the Lord is the day of vengeance of our God. This combination so constantly occurs that the psalmist said, I will sing of mercy and judgment. So I hope we'll think on this book. I know, again, we spent a lot of time talking about this this morning, but I hope this gives us a good idea of where we're going uh, with this particular study. All right, let's go ahead and pray together and we'll be dismissed and we'll get ready for um, our worship service this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we know we have covered a lot of material today. And Lord, we pray that you'll help us even as we begin this journey through the book of Obadiah, that you would help us to see the great truths that are contained here. Father, may you help us as we study for ourselves and see the great connections between your covenantal promises and their fulfillment. Lord, help our present circumstances not to hinder our walk with you. Lord, everyone in this building today is dealing with circumstances that are painful, they're uncomfortable, some cases are downright frightening. May we find our hope and sustaining faith in you. Maybe the purpose of this book for us today is just simply to remind us of your goodness and your promises. And that, Lord, we know that we can trust in you in all things. Father, we thank you for this time. Help us now as we prepare our hearts to sing praises unto you, to read the scripture together, and to expound the pages of the blessed book once again. And it's in Christ's name and for his sake I do pray. Amen. All right. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.